23. <clears throat> Our main text for today is found in verse 10 through 14. Proverbs 23, 10 through 14. Do not move an ancient landmark or enter the fields of the fatherless, for their redeemer is strong. He will plead their cause against you. Apply your heart to instruction and your ear to words of knowledge. Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. If you strike him with the rod, you will save his soul from shoal. So we're going to be talking about parental discipline today, but I do want to help those that are here that are not in the stage of needing to discipline their children. Either you've moved past that, like I have, or you're just not there. I want to help you to think about how to listen to a sermon like this that seems, at least on its face, to be aimed squarely at those who have children in young stages in need of discipline. The big idea of this message will simply be that the rod is the thing that is used when reason fails. The rod is the thing when someone won't listen to reason. And we get our understanding of discipline, of parental discipline, through our understanding of God's activity as our Father. And so one of the things we'll see in this sermon is that God always goes with reason first, and only after we refuse to listen to reason does the rod come into play. So if you're here and you don't have kids or you, you don't have kids of an age to be disciplined and so on and so forth, one of the things you can think about, and I'll get more explicit with this in a moment, is how God the Father interacts with us on these terms. Another way to think about this sermon is to think if you're, say, my age or beyond the years of disciplining your own children, is to remember that this is a very complicated subject. And parents will inevitably come to someone who's older and ask for help. And so it's good for you to be reminded of what the Bible actually teaches here. And another thing to think about here is, you know, the way that you were raised, it makes a huge difference in your life. No matter if you're 50 or 60 or 70, the way you were raised makes a huge difference in your life. And so today, as we talk about godly parenting, I hope you'll have reason to look back and be grateful for what God did through your parents. But if you look back and see a lot of problems, well, that's not necessarily a bad thing either because it helps you to understand where there was compliance to God's word in your upbringing and where there was not. And understanding that, apart from some kind of accusation or blame or kind of becoming a victim, understanding that with clear-eyed sense will allow you to sort of sort out the difference between what you saw and what God's will actually was. Okay, so to get into this, to jump into this, I wanted to be sure to include verse 10 in our conversation, though it is not explicitly about disciplining children. There are two points in verse 10 that I think are very important to make. Verse 10 says, do not move an ancient landmark or enter the fields of the fatherless. And verse 11, for their redeemer is strong. He will plead their cause against you. My first idea is simply this. Be careful to be kind to children. Be careful to be kind to children because, as this verse reminds us, their Redeemer is strong. In Matthew 18, verse 10, Jesus says, you need to be nice to these kids because I tell you that their angels are always before the Father. 
And in a verse previous, in, in Matthew 18, 6, Jesus says that if you cause any of these little ones to sin, it will be better for you that a millstone be tied around your neck and thrown into the sea than to face the judgment that awaits you if you have mistreated any of my little ones. And so one of the things that we want to make sure we understand on the front end is that God really values children. God is their protector. He is their redeemer. Whether they, those children have parents or don't, God is their redeemer. And he is insistent, even through Jesus, that we treat them kindly. And I would point you back to what we said last week. They are, they are made by the same one who made us. They have equal value and so on and so forth. They do not appear to the world to have equal value, but they do. And so we should be careful to be kind to children. But there's another lesson that begins to emerge in verse 10 that I think is very important as we consider this issue of discipline. And that is, is that children need someone to protect them, to protect their future for them. Children need someone to protect their future for them. The meaning of verse 10, do not move our, an ancient landmark or enter the fields of the fatherless, is this. People's property used to be divided. I think there still is this quite a bit. Used to be divided by landmarks, by marking stones. And if you found a field that was the technical uh, possession of a fatherless child, so say a 12-year-old boy who lost his dad in war or something, the temptation, if you're of a dark heart, is to move that stone across the creek so that now you have the creek. Or to move it a little bit further so that you can take further possession of the land. The temptation is to exploit a child who doesn't have a dad and to take away something that belongs to him. And specifically, it is their future inheritance. It is their future financial security and so forth. So verse 10 is actually warning people against exploiting children who don't have someone to defend their future. But the underlying assumption there is that children need someone and are reliant on someone to defend their future. Children are reliant on someone to protect their future for them. In verses 10 and 11, we see a financial future in view. Don't steal the land of someone who has no one to protect them because God is their redeemer and he will plead their cause. But in verses 13 through 14, we're reminded of another future, a spiritual future, a future pinged not only in spirituality, but just on the child's character. And remember, we're taught, we're saying children need someone to protect their future for them. And in verse 10 through 11, it's a financial future. But look at verses 13 through 14. Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. If you strike him with the rod, you will save his soul from shoal. And so now we have a different kind of future portrayed. A spiritual future, but also kind of just the way this kid's life is going to go. I think you can say shoal means a multitude of things in the Old Testament. It means just death. It means hell. And it means sort of a living hell. A living hell. What, what do I mean by a living hell? Well, look at verse 20. As he pivots, as the writer of this passage pivots from discipline, he begins to warn his son about different outcomes in life. Verse 20. Be not among drunkards or among gluttonous eaters of meat or the drunkard, for the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty and slumber will clothe them with rags. 
Listen to your father who gave you life, and do not despise your mother when she is old. Buy truth and do not sell it. Buy wisdom, instruction, and understanding. The father of the righteous will greatly rejoice. He who fathers a wise son will be glad in him. Let your, mother and, let your father and mother be glad. Let her who bore you rejoice. My son, give me your heart. This is in verse uh, 26. My son, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. For a prostitute is a deep pit and adulteress is a narrow well. She lies in wait like a robber and increases the traitors among mankind. And then he goes back from there in, in verse 29 through th verse 35 to talk about drinking again. And so what you've got is you've got a father who is looking forward into his son's future and saying, if you don't act wisely, there are these terrible fates that befall you. Not physical death, not necessarily hell, but life consumed by drink and women. And of course, when Jesus tells us the story of the prodigal son, what do we see is life consumed by, right? And so what you see here is, is that children need someone to protect their future for them. In verses 10 and 11, when we're talking about land and someone tempted to exploit a child's defenselessness, we see that the enemy is from without. Uh, these children need to be protected from the enemy without. And the reason why fatherless children are vulnerable is because the one who should stand up and protect their future isn't around. But in verses 12 through 14, we see that there is also an enemy within the child an enemy within the child, and that enemy will also rob a child of his future. And that enemy has a name, and that name is found in the previous chapter, in, verse 22, verse, in chapter 22, verse 15, and that enemy's name is folly. Folly. What is the rod for? What is discipline for? Discipline is to protect a child's future from the enemy within named folly. Verse, uh, Proverbs twenty-two fifteen 15 says, folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. So you've got to picture a child as having enemies without who will take advantage of them and rob them of their future. And then you've also got to remember that there are enemies within, namely folly. And this folly is really, if you pull apart the Hebrew, it means thickness. Thickness. So when you say thick-headed, you mean folly. See, this, the Bible portrays people as having a thickness problem, not the kind of thickness problem I have, but a spiritual thickness problem. And so a lot of the terminologies related to someone not perceiving God's will accurately are related to this thickness problem. Thick eyes, film over your eyes, plugged ears, thickness covering your ears, hard-heartedness. You see what's going on there? It's always describing someone who can't receive the truth. They're just not in a position to receive the truth. There's some kind of callous covering something that they need to understand the truth. And so the basic idea of the whole sermon, really, is that folly keeps a person from listening to reason. And therefore, reason is excluded from certain parental discipline situations and the rod comes in because the rod has the ability, Proverbs twenty-two fifteen says, to drive out folly. So folly is the, is the recipient of physical discipline. Folly is the aim of physical discipline. What you're doing when you discipline a child in some physical way 
is you are attempting to pierce through this thick covering over their heart, over their ears, over their eyes, so that they can once again respond to reason. Now, one of the very most important things that we have to understand about discipline is we have to go to God and we have to say, he's our father, how does he do all of this, right? Parenting is essentially a test of your practical theology. It, 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 the more you know God and understand his ways and are able to individuate his ways and apply them with wisdom into your situation, the better off you'll be. The, the fewer times you'll be left wondering, I just don't know what to do. The more you know God, the better you know God, the, less, the fewer times there will be where you are puzzled and don't know what to do. And what we need to see about God is that he always comes with reason first and then responds to folly, which is the sort of insensibility toward reason, with the rod. Reason, then the rod. Reason, then the rod. This is, this is fundamental to understand not only about God, but also about how parenting actually works. What I mean by reason is that God consistently, frequently, clearly communicates his will. He, he communicates his will consistently, clearly, frequently. His will doesn't change. He doesn't stop communicating his will. He continually, continually, continually tells us what he wants us to do. But there is this theme in the scriptures, and I couldn't possibly give you half of the scriptures in an hour's time. There are so many of them. Where God essentially says, because you have stopped listening, I must now pick up the rod. Because you have stopped listening, I must now pick up the rod. There's this heartbreaking moment where Jesus is crying over Jerusalem and he says, oh, how often I have longed to gather you under my wings like a hen gathers its chicks, but you would not listen or you were not willing. And Jesus is weeping over Jerusalem because he knows in relatively short period of time, the entire city would be uh, would fall under God's extreme discipline hand in 70 AD, and terror would be just constant in this city as a, as a fundamental reaction to their unwillingness to listen to the reason, the logos that was in their midst, who was Jesus. Let me just give you two texts that show this kind of pattern, reason and then the rod. In Jeremiah 7, 13 through 15, and now because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen. And when I called you and you did not answer, therefore I will do to the house that is called by my name, in which you trust, and to the place that I gave to you and to your fathers as I did to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight, and I will cast all your kingsmen, all the offspring of Ephraim. Isaiah 66.4. I also will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them, because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen, but they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. So how does God parent us? He gives us his will. He communicates his will. He communicates his will in a consistent way. He communicates his will in a patient way. He is an expert at communication. He tells us, tells us, tells us. And if we listen and obey, we don't experience the rod. But if we cannot respond to God's reason because there is thickness over our hearts or over our ears or over our eyes, 
God allows the rod to come in as a way to pierce through, hopefully, because it doesn't always work, pierce through that thickness that's covering our capacity, our ability to listen. So this is what God is always doing. Even in the garden, we see that God says in very clear and reasoned terms, uh, the day that you eat of this, you will surely die. He is always telling us what we must do and what we must not do. But then if we refuse to listen to reason, God brings in the rod. Jesus came as the logos. He came, which is another way of saying the reason. In the beginning was the logos, the first John 1 says. So God is always communicating his will first. And then when people are slow to hear, he communicates it again. He communicates it again. He will send prophets in to live out his word so that not only is the word spoken, but then he calls someone like Ezekiel to live out sort of a a moving picture, a moving meme, if you will, of exactly what he's saying. God consistently and clearly communicates, but at some point, according to his divine will and his divine wisdom, he moves from reason to dealing with the folly that is at work in the human heart, and he drives that out through discipline through the rod. So this is what Proverbs is doing. The book of Proverbs is reasoning with a young man. Over and over and over again, the bulk of Proverbs, even though there are many Proverbs about spanking and about discipline, the whole context of the book is a father reasoning with his child. And then when that reason fails, the rod is brought in. Let's stop, pause here to discuss one application point for parents. I'll often be asked by parents, is spanking the only way? How should I spank? What other options are there? And so on and so forth. Well, do you, if you understand this principle clearly, you'll, you'll begin to understand. If the child isn't responding to reason, you have to use some kind of a rod that pierces through, that doesn't communicate on an intellectual level. And so you could get too cute with your spanking replacements and essentially ask, why aren't these working? It's like, well, because you're trying to reason with someone who has already shown they're not open to reason. So the reason that the, 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 the paddle, the rod, is put forward here is not out of cruelty. It's out of kindness. And it's simply an effort to communicate in a way that may be understood when someone has been closed off entirely to reason. So uh, by all means, understand this passage that we've just read. Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with the rod, he will not die. If you strike him with the rod, you will save his soul from shoal. By all means, individuate that and find out techniques to pierce through the folly that work for your child. But if you get too cute and you get too abstract from this, you're essentially winding up back in this place of reasoning with your child. And that's, you need an alternative. You need, you need a second step. So whatever you choose your second step to be, it can't be reliant on reason entirely. You have to figure out a way to pierce through the folly with something that doesn't rely on their heart, their eyes, their ears. And and a lot of people for many, many years have found that the bottom receives information that the ears will not. Now, What's interesting about this passage is, well, look at it with me, verse 13. Do not withhold discipline from a child. Do not withhold discipline from a child. 
This passage and many others are anticipating a problem that I think all good parents will experience. And that is what I would just call reluctance toward the rod. Reluctance toward the rod. All the good parents struggle with reluctance toward the rod. Not, yay, I get to spank my kid again. Here's the deal with spanking. Your kids are freaking cute. And no matter how much we say the opposite, we want our kids to like us. We want our kids to like us. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that, by the way. I tell people this all the time, so I hope that it sinks in. You know, the majority of time you relate to your child will be as adult to adult. That is the, the longest period of experience you'll have with your child. Not, not when they're four, but when they're 24, and so on and so forth. And so the desire to have your children as comrades is not all bad. It can go too far, and I'm thinking of that terrible woman in Mean Girls, the terrible mother in Mean Girls, where you're just trying to validate your own coolness by having your teenagers think you're cool. That's a, that's a terrible idea. But the desire for your children to like you, like that's wholesome. That's good. There's nothing wrong with that. But it can cause reluctance toward corporal punishment. The other reason for reluctance is that it's just a lot of work. It's a whole deal, right? It's just a whole deal. It's like, it's like uh, you're going along with your day, and suddenly you, know, you blow out a tire in your car, and now you're just sitting there, and you're just dealing with this thing you just don't want to deal with, and so on. So, so it's actually quite a bit of work. And we, not only do we want our kids to like us, we're all in some ways lazy, especially given certain days and certain conditions, and so on and so forth. And there just seem to be a lot of reasons to let this pass, and so on and so forth. So. That's another reason for reluctance. Another reason for reluctance is just an uncertainty about when it is appropriate. Um, hopefully, just in giving you the dynamic that we see with God, reason, then rod, you begin to have some idea of when it is appropriate. But even then, you're like, okay, have I communicated this enough? Have I reasoned with them enough? And what is enough? And so on and so forth. And so there's always in a good parent's heart a bit of uncertainty about is this the time, is this not the time, so on and so forth. And I won't get into today about the uncertainty of like how to do it and so on and so forth because I don't want to get flagged online or something. You know, I really care about that a lot. But one of the things I want to deal with, and I hear this all the time, is what I would call an urban legend that suggests that excessive discipline leads to rebellion. Um, that excessive discipline can, can stir up a child into rebellion. And I want to speak to your conscience about this because I believe that it's, it is an urban legend and I want to clear it up. Uh, first of all, that would be purely anecdotal right? It would just be something that the Bible does not teach. The Bible does not, if, if you have the right relationship with God's word and see it as the sufficient source for all you need for life and godliness and to make you equipped for every good work, you would go to the Bible and say, how many times has the Bible warned me about excessive discipline causing rebellion? And the answer would be, I know the Bible pretty well. I can't think of any. I, my guess is there's something. I just can't think of it. But I spent a week trying to think of it. I couldn't think of it. Now, ask me the opposite question. How many times has the Bible warned implicitly in like a text like this, or explicitly in a text like this, or implicitly just in a story, 
that a lack of discipline leads to rebellion. A lot, a lot. Those, those, those many, many instances. So one of the things I'd want to say is that one of the things we got to get good at is sniffing when an when when urban legend has entered our conscience and it just doesn't fit with God's word. It's like, this just seems like somewhat logically possible, but I need to investigate this further because it doesn't really match up with God's word. Nonetheless, this has been, since I was a kid, an extraordinarily common perception that excessive discipline leads to rebellion. And so I want to handle it just for maybe five minutes or so. The data related to sociology and psychology both suggest exactly the opposite. Not that we're aiming for this sort of thing, but the truth is is that the data that I've seen says that the more dominant someone is, the more subservient the subject becomes. And so there's a reason why North Korea is held together for as long as it has, for instance. So actually most of the psychological and sociological data says that the more overlording you are toward people, the more subservient you be, that those people become, not the more rebellious they become. The spark of rebellion that we, I think we kind of actually want to see in the world sometimes, it's like, why don't you stand up? I mean, honestly, like, go back to Auschwitz and ask that question. The truth is, is that a culture that is extremely heavy-handed tends to produce sheep, and we don't want sheep either. But uh, there's no data that backs this up that I can see. Here's how I think I would explain this phenomenon and why this idea has some traction in our minds. The first one is this. What we're hearing is often the self-reporting of children who rebelled. So one of the things we need to understand is that spiritually, um, there is a problem that the Bible deals with, and that is simply some children are just anti-parent. And that's just a thing you're going, you may encounter in your household. Uh, Romans 1 talks about this. 2 Timothy 3 talks about this. The truth is, is that we would definitely, for instance, in picking elders, go to 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 and say, there is a strong correlation between parental input and child output. So we would use the character of a man's children as a viable predictor of sort of what's going on with this man. But we would also want to say, so that we would be extremely picky when picking elders because of that. But we'd also want to say, the Bible is actually pretty clear that that's not always how this works. And that there are just children who are just rebellious. And specifically, often rebellious against their parents. It's such a, 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 a head-scratching reality to experience people who are generally pivoting toward rebellion against their parents, for instance, basically call Fauci their daddy and do exactly what he told them to do. This means that the rebellion seems to be selective in some cases. It's like, I'm not sure we understand that and we've thought clearly about that, but the truth is, is the Bible predicts that some kids will simply be against their parents in a sinful way. And this is a problem that is dealt with from the very beginning, even in the garden, my friends. Again, if our theology is right, we'll, we'll, we'll see through some of this stuff. We know, for instance, that every single child that God has ever adopted through the, through the crucifixion of Jesus Christ 
has been a problem child, right? So this idea, one of the things we need to say is I'm not going to correlate all rebellion that comes out of Christian homes with bad parenting one way or the other. The truth is, is that some kids are just rebellious. If you're admitting anecdotal evidence, admit me. I was a full-blown rebellious child, and I was not rebellious because my parents excessively disciplined me. Now, we still haven't fully kind of grasped what are some possible explanations for this thing that we have admitted as like, this, there seems to be something there. One of the things I would say is that there are many parents, many Christian parents, who have real, genuine, personal problems with authority themselves. And if you see a tree of rebellion coming off of a particular parenting group, I would not be quick to say that is because of over-discipline or under-discipline. My first assumption would often be, do those parents have problems with authority? Because very often we think we can behave in a certain way as to trick our kids and, and sort of like deal with the thing according to God's word here while our hearts are far from God's word on the very subject. And the truth is, is wherever your heart is related to authority, that's what you're sowing into your home over and over and over again. And so, you know, one of the, one of the ways we can maybe explain, well, what happens when you see a rebellious child come out of a, of a, of a Christian home. It's like well, one of the things that could be happening is, is that mom or dad or both are actually arrogant and resistant to rebuke and suspicious of authority and prickly toward all of that, toward, prickly toward being led. And that's just the vibe that they have planted in their children in thousands of unspoken moments. Another possible explanation would simply be that parents who are ruled by emotion are often sowing that into their children. And what is a rebellious person? Often a rebellious person is someone who's just led by how they feel. And so you could have parents who check off all the boxes properly in Christian parenting, but if they're anti-authority or they're uh, ruled by emotion, even if they're especially emotional in their discipline, what you're really communicating over time to your children is, is that you should do what you feel like. What you feel like is what rules me. What, what I feel like is what rules me, and so what you feel like should rule you. Also, obviously related to this text, is there are parents who use discipline instead of reason. This is the classic because I said so thing with no clear explanation of what is going on and why it's going on. There are parents who use discipline in capricious and arbitrary ways. And there are parents, most importantly, who use discipline for some other purpose than what is prescribed here. And so what I would tell you very clearly is like all things that God has given us, we can misuse them. And I can't imagine the horrific instances when people have misused this tool as with every other tool that God has given us. But let me tell you something, friends. If you're going to start checking, taking things away that get misused by others, I expect you to be celibate and not drinking by tomorrow, right? Like, if you're going to take away things that can be misused and hurt people, please just let me know when you've signed up for the, uh, for the teetotaling celibacy wagon. The truth is, is that God gives us a many things that are extraordinarily powerful and can be used 
for the good of others or for harm. And so let's get even deeper. Let's, we've established that the rod comes in after discipline, after reason has somehow failed. Let's be even more specific. Look at the verse again, verse 23, or verse, chapter 23, verse 14. Sorry, verse 13. Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. If you strike him with the rod, you will save his soul from shoal. Here's the deal. You are not disciplining a child for the sake of your comfort, for the sake of your reputation, or even for the sake of their good career. Discipline must be rooted in a value of their soul. You must love their souls. You must love their souls. You must be a guardian of their souls. You must act out of stewardship for their souls. And yes, boy, if you get that wrong, and it would certainly be, we're all sinners. It would certainly be easy to get this wrong. And you start disciplining for some other purpose than to care for their soul, to help them to have a wise heart, to restore their capacity for reason. Well, of course, of course, like so many other things, You've taken a gift from God, a tool that God has put in your toolbox, and he's called you to use and used it in sinful ways for sinful purposes. Of course your results are going to greatly vary from what God has prescribed. So just in review, the rod has one purpose, to pierce through thickness, insensibility, an unwillingness to get into a state of reason. And this means, parents, that you will have some children who get the rod very infrequently and some who get it more frequently. And it will all have to do with their capacity to listen. And not every child has the same capacity to listen. You know, one of the great bummers of being a parent is, is Wes here? Oh, sorry. Uh, sorry in advance. The kids are going through these uh, premarital, you know, they're getting married. The kids are going through these premarital sessions, and uh, there's these videos. And Wes comes into my room one day. He's like, I really like these videos. I'm learning all kinds of things I've never heard before. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that's what it was, Wes. <laughs> no one had ever told you any of this before. The truth is, is that your capacity to communicate is not often the problem, mom and dad. You know, I look out here right now, and I've known a lot dumber people than the ones I see right here. I mean, I'm not saying you're geniuses, but some of you are. But what I am telling you is I really think that you are going to be able to communicate the right stuff in a reasonable way. And I think if you paid attention to your kids, you'd see that it's not so much the mouth as it is the ears, because one kid's ears just seem to work better than another kid's ears. And if you'll remember that it's not up to you, you can't, you didn't choose their ears for them. It's not every kid is going to listen as well, and so your discipline doesn't match up in an equal kind of equitous way. Each kid needs their own treatment plan, so to speak, for the way that folly expresses itself in their life. Now, that's really all I have to say about it. It's a really simple, conscience-cleaning treatment of the subject of spanking or discipline in general. 
And that is tell your kids what you want them to do. And at some point, they're going to cross a line that you are clear is this is folly. Now, I was just consumed. I had, I had ADD earworms and ADD brainworms just crawling around my head all the time. And legitimately, many times, I just wasn't paying attention. And legitimately, many times, my parents cut me slack, and not in a bad way, and just reminded me and reminded me and reminded me, just like my wife does today. Again, individuate and understand your kids. But the truth is, there is a sign, there is a, there's an evidence that displays, that says, this child is choosing not to respond to reason. And so now I have to come up with something, some means to communicate to them that is not within the spectrum of reason. And that's why the rod is being presented to you today. Now, the rest of this, and the reason why this is relatively short, is the rest of this has almost got to be handled on a case-by-case basis. You know, there are passages like Titus 2 and others where we're really told as believers that at some level we've got to go to individuals for help. We've got to go to individuals, older individuals, and get extremely practical care on, so, on these things. I have an older friend that I meet with frequently, and his whole life he's dedicated to one-on-one discipleship. And he uses the analogy of golf or the metaphor of golf to describe kind of what happens in a church. He's like, the sermon is the driver. It moves the ball pretty far down the field. Small groups are like the wedges, the irons. They'll get the ball maybe even on the green. But there's that final distance, that final distance. The ball's on the green, but it's got to get individually into this person's realm of application, into that cup. That short distance is really best handled in one-on-one, one-on-three, small group conversations, and so on. Because this issue requires a ton of discernment and wisdom beyond anything I've described so far. And so I would just leave the putting game to private conversations within the church where you go and you figure out the details for you. I want to leap back up into the macro and ask this simple question. Are you listening to the Lord? God is reasoning with you. On a whole host of issues, God is reasoning with you. He is telling you what he wants in his word. Are you responding to his reasoning? Are you responding to his reasoning? Well, if not, what is the trajectory for your next experience? What have we learned today? What comes after the rejection of reason? What's the rod? The rod comes when reason fails. And so it's an invitation for all of us to be that much more sensitive to what the Lord is calling us to do and who the Lord is calling us to be, to understand that he has prescribed his will clearly to us, and it's our responsibility to be attentive. So in introducing communion, let me read Isaiah 1, 18 through 20. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul is issuing quite a bit of reason. 
in hopes that the, Jew, that, that the church will repent over their partaking, their sinful partaking of the table. But he just reminds them at this very time that it is the Lord Jesus who was not only disciplined on our behalf, but punished. And he says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let me pray for us, and then we'll come and partake of the table. Well, Lord God, we praise your holy name for your kindness and patience toward us. You have been far more patient in communicating your will to us than we deserve. We actually don't even deserve to know your will. You have shown us not only your will, but yourself. You have given us over and over again time to hear you and to respond. And Lord, we are also thankful. As I read in Psalm 119 this week, it is good that I was stricken by the Lord, for now I have a heart to obey. Lord, we are thankful not only for your reasoning, but also your rod. We are thankful for the ways often, Lord, just through simple consequences in our life, that you bring the rod into our lives. And you discipline us and restore our hearts, soften our hearts, and renew them and make them ready to listen to and obey. So, God, we are most thankful above all for the privilege we have to call the God of the universe our Father. And we have that privilege because of what Jesus Christ accomplished on our behalf on the cross. Father, I lift up in particular parents of younger children who are processing this idea at a, at a personal, individual level in their own homes. I pray, God, give them wisdom and patience and uh, diligence, Lord. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would fill them as they consider the work of parenting that you've given them. Lord, you love children. They're precious in your sight. And it is a high and scary privilege to be called to be stewards of those kids. And so, Lord, in addition to praying for them, I pray that our church would constantly be on mission to support and encourage those who are raising up little ones. Lord, I pray for those here who are going to have kids who don't have kids right now, I pray, God, that you would bring blessings of children into their life. I pray, God, that you would just even do miracles to make that happen. I pray, God, that you would give blessings in the way that you give blessings, and that is that they're undeserved. God, shower blessings of children on our, on our church. Shower blessings of children on our, on, our, on our young people. And Lord, we pray that you would help this church to be the kind of place that protects children from the enemies outside and the enemies inside. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.